I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, and this is a special audio podcast edition of our program. Sarah Fryer is a reporter covering social media at Bloomberg. She's author of No Filter, the inside story of Instagram. Uh, Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Sarah, I want to ask you just this question to start. Is there a difference in the way that Instagram has handled mis- and disinformation than the way Facebook has at large? Well, a little bit, because Instagram is structured differently. They, they have anonymity on their platform. They don't have content that goes viral the way content on Facebook goes viral. So misinformation has an easier time hiding on Instagram than it does on Facebook. And, and I think it's, it's important to understand that because it goes into the enforcement of that platform. Facebook, of course, tries to prioritize the places that have the most users. Instagram has more than a billion users, but they use it very differently than they do Facebook. So I think that they're a little bit farther behind Facebook in terms of fighting misinformation. It's not as clear that the misinformation is not as explicit to the eye on Instagram. Well, on Facebook, they send links of things to fact checkers that could potentially be false, that are going viral. They'll see a story that makes some claim, and if it gets reported enough times, a fact checker will take a look at it. And I think on Instagram, because communities build not around like posts, but they build around people, that the communities looking at the information are less likely to flag it because they probably also believe it. And has that affected the way that you think the public perceives Instagram versus Facebook? What, what would you say from your reporting is public perception of one versus the other? I think people have generally felt that ins- the people I've spoke with in my book generally feel that Instagram has been a little bit of an escape from Facebook, that it's a little bit more focused on, on artistic images, it's definitely more visual, it's, it's an escapist, aspirational place, whereas Facebook is more about keeping up with what's going on and sharing updates in your life. So it has a very different use case. And when it comes to the dark side, I think the dark side on Instagram is certainly, certainly more hidden and not something that most of us think about day by day. But if you take a look at these communities that are, that are organized by hashtag, you will see the same kind of gatherings, just like in Facebook groups. Facebook has some groups that are promoting anti-vax content or white supremacist content or uh, harmful medical misinformation. And you find the same on Instagram, but hidden within hashtag communities or uh, in a particular person with a heavy following in their posts. Now, preparing for the dis and misinformation this election cycle is, you know, based on the the company line, if you will, at Facebook, um, or as they're calling it now, the Facebook company. Um, it, is the company line that um, Instagram is is part of their strategy to. Um, mitigate misinformation um, or is it not clearly part of their conversation around 
safety and information literacy and integrity during the during the campaign? It's certainly part of their conversation. I mean, they have included Instagram in some of the initiatives they're doing around coronavirus misinformation, for example. If you search for coronavirus on Instagram, you're likely to get a pop-up that says, would you like to visit the World Health Organization or the CDC, somewhere with with a more vetted information before looking at these posts. And so they have addressed it similarly in that way. I think overall political misinformation has been very loosely regulated across Facebook and Instagram. Facebook says that, that they actually don't mind if politicians lie in their advertisements, that they won't enforce against that that they want uh, people to feel like they're getting the full story if they're going to these sites, even if the story includes some, some lies or some misinformation. So I think political misinformation is, is certainly, um, is going to be even harder for them this time around, given that they are, are strapped for resources because they're trying to deal first, Zuckerberg said they're dealing first with COVID misinformation. Well, doesn't it seem like the urgency of scientific literacy, uh, if you want to call it that, compared to political literacy or what we call civic education, that that made more of an impression, uh, maybe that there were not figuratively, but literally lives at stake and that drinking Clorox um, or taking a a measure that uh, is scientifically illiterate um, will damage people's health in their in their lives. Um, is it just out of convenience that uh, at the end of the day, Facebook is a product and not a public service, and um, they realize that if they're feeding people Clorox in in um, the president's you know, messages, that um, that they are going to be more cautious around COVID-related information. Um, Listen, I think I think it's just easier for them to talk about COVID misinformation than it is to talk about political misinformation because they live in a world where they can be regulated by t- politicians. There's a little bit of a conflict of interest there. They they accept political advertising money. It, it's a difficult relationship. They want politicians to use the platform. They want them to feel good about using it to build their audiences. And when it comes to COVID misinformation, they don't even have to say what is right or wrong, they can just point to the WHO and the CDC. There isn't really an entity that you can point to for the truth on political misinformation. They have a few third parties that help them fact check, like the Associated Press, um, but a lot of those fact checkers have have um, turned over over the years, and uh, people have have sometimes felt like they are not authoritative sources uh, whether they disagree with them or not. And so I think that it's just easier to say, this is what the this leading government or non-governmental organization says about coronavirus than it is to say, you know, Trump is lying to you and this is Facebook telling you that. And Twitter actually got in a little bit of hot water yesterday uh, for for pinpointing misinformation in a Trump tweet and having it be Twitter employees that wrote the response saying that uh, tw- Trump had tweeted about uh, how mail-in ballots were a source of fraud. And of course, that's not true. And when Twitter put a notice below the tweet saying that it 
it was not true that there was no evidence of this, then uh, the company is risking its immunity under Section 230, which is a law that says if you are an editor or a publisher of the information, then you could be liable for it for its contents. But if you're simply an internet service, then you don't have to you don't have to vet every single thing that goes up before it goes up. In the acquisition of Instagram and in the ongoing story that is Facebook, uh, what is most revealing in informing whether or not Facebook will ever protect civil society? I mean, will ever take the step that many of us in civic education and, and who are part of the public airwaves believe has been long overdue with a, a, a very clear classification system and not necessarily a censor, censorship uh, system, but a classification of truth to really understand what is the non-fictional world and what is the fictional world. And I'm wondering in the process of writing your book, what was most revealed to you about if and when they will ever be prepared to take that kind of action. And it seems more appropriate for Facebook, but at any given point, it could be just as needed on Instagram. Well, I think the most surprising thing that I learned was that Mark Zuckerberg, after a few years of watching and helping Instagram's rise at Facebook, eventually became threatened by its popularity and sought to restrict its resources and integrate it more fully into Facebook to try to make sure that Facebook continued to be the dominant platform. And that had huge implications for us as users of Instagram because if Instagram comes second in Facebook's allocation of resources, so too do Instagram's methods for trying to fix these problems. And so Instagram is really a, a couple years behind Facebook in terms of how it solves things and how it addresses misinformation and how it how it um, works on this, and and they also are not able to easily apply the same thing. Like one of Facebook's arguments to to Congress and others is that by combining the platforms, they will actually increase the effectiveness of some of the some of the the problem seeking. So they say if there's some something going on on Facebook, they'll be able to do some triangulation and find the same people doing it on Instagram. That's true, but like I said earlier in our conversation, Instagram works very differently and they have a whole different set of problems. Things like like uh, drug sales that I mentioned uh, are more vibrant on a visual community like Instagram and harder to find because it's harder to look through images than it is to look through text if you are a computer seeking these things. So I think that there was a a cost to to Facebook and Instagram by combining these platforms, and that decision was was pretty shocking to me in the reporting. The other thing that I would point out, and this is not this is not necessarily about Facebook's acquisition of Instagram, but just Instagram's impact on all of us. If you're talking about misinformation, well, Instagram is a is an app that has trained us to present our lives as more polished and beautiful than they actually are. It started out in 2010 with filters. I mean, that was, that was, you know, meant to improve our camera phone photos, which were a little bit blurry and, 
and dark at the time and, and it would make them look artsier, but it gave, it gave us this acceptance of the idea that everything that we post on Instagram is a more polished version of reality. And some people have taken that to further extremes and, you know, altered their, their faces and bodies using Facetune. They've bought fake followers. They've bought fake comments. And so this whole issue of reality on the internet is, is really complicated. It's not just about fake news and misinformation. It's also just about how we live our lives and how we share. One of the most perceptive commenters um, on this question and crisis of misinformation has been Sleeping Giants. And they, they tweeted um, recently in response to the Twitter and its effort to fact check the president and Facebook's failure to do so. Um, this is the entire game that Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube have been playing from the start. Instead of equally enforcing their terms of service, they've been allowing elected officials and their favorite pundits to break them so as not to get regulated. Now it's finally come to pass, and they'll now likely back off fact-checking or any type of real enforcement to placate their would-be regulators. And so, you know, Sleeping Giants, which is the campaign to deplatform a lot of the sexism, misogyny, bigotry that these platforms have uh, incubated and uh, profited from um, is pointing out that um, it's nearly impossible in this unholy alliance with, with the present administration to win the war. Uh, as Sleeping Giant says, if they allow the president to break the rules, they've essentially negated their rules for all of their users. If they use fact checks, they will be blamed for bias. And he says, um, Sleeping Giant's founder, Matt Rivets, they only truly have two options. Rip off the Band-Aid and enforce their rules equally for everyone. Uh, or put out a statement that the president is too important to their business and public model to remove any tweets. Um, so, you know, where does that leave us knowing that it's not really just a question of these organizations' self-preservation. It's about the idea that this president's entire political brand and vocabulary and his access to his base is on this platform. So when he says he's going to tear Twitter up, we can't really take him at face value because that would be a deafening silence to many of his most loyal fans and, and voters. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, a lot of people want to make this apolitical, but tech regulation, it would be hard to accomplish in any environment, but it's, it's nearly impossible to because of this president's unique relationship with these super spreaders of um, Trump misinformation online. You're, you're right. And it's, it's also just that this is, this is the, the game, right? This is the tool is he understands that if he, uh, if anything happens to him, um, first let's, let's establish it was not censorship by by Twitter to put any notice on Trump's tweets. He's, they're not preventing him from speaking. They're just adding more information. Um, but for Trump to call censorship and to say that this is a violation of his free speech, he knows that that's going to rile up his base. 
and and become a, a big media firestorm and a distraction from the real issues of our day, which is this pandemic. And so I, I think that that this is, um, it, it's really interesting to see the difference between how Twitter is doing this and how Facebook is doing this. Twitter has much less risk of regulation right now than Facebook does. They're smaller, there's no, there's no claim that they have a monopoly uh, in any stretch of the imagination. They are, are much smaller, a little bit more niche, um, but, if Facebook were to do the same thing, you would see a lot more calls for regulation and a lot more risk of that potentially coming to pass. So, so I think that that it's it's tough now because now that Twitter has done this, they're going to have to be consistent, uh, and they're going to have to keep doing it. And where they draw the line on what they fact check and what they don't is is going to be very interesting. This is the first time uh, of all the things that Trump has said you know, that have gotten really close to crossing the line. This is the one thing that they felt crossed the line. And, and we'll see what else they find as, as in line with that. And to be clear to our listeners, it was not the false accusation that a, an adversary in the media uh, committed murder. It was, um, it was specifically uh, misinformation, I uh, should say disinformation, um, that was sowing doubts about the integrity of online um, of uh, remote balloting and uh, and mail mail in ba- balloting, uh, specifically in in California. So, you know, do do you see that this sort of civic consciousness is going to be applied to the franchise, the vote, and specifically misinformation about the vote, but not about the president's fantasies that are, that are in effect, you know, National Enquirer musings. Uh, to me, Twitter often on, on Trump's feed is like a modern day National Enquirer. Um, do you think that um, Twitter will, you know, ultimately not cross that line, but they've they, but they've stood now by um, misinformation, disinformation on voting, but they're not going to get into anything else. Um, and likewise, do you think at any point, as a, as a final question to you, um, do, at any point, do you think that Facebook would be prepared to do something um, remotely comparable? Well, I think that you're going to see them do things that are less about these personal personnel issues um, and and lies about about potential media foes. Um, Trump has been very good about couching everything he says in opinion. You're not going straight into the he he does a lot of implying and he does a lot of insinuating. Um, but he doesn't often come out and, or he, he does a lot of opinion, but he doesn't often come out and say something definitive and easy to fact check. Like, for example, on his hydrochloroquine tweets, he said, he said, oh, I really hope the FDA rushes to approve this. He wasn't necessarily saying that you should all take this drug today. Everyone do it because it'll save you from coronavirus. But that was the implication. So, so I think that he often skirts right up to the line without crossing it. With the male voter 
voter choice, he was very definitive, like this is going to cause voter fraud. And if you're very definitive about something, then it's easier to correct you. And so I think that that's where, where Twitter across Twitter is drawing the line. It's like, if it's a statement of fact, much easier to address, especially if, you, if the fact is, is very provably false and obvious and about something like voting, which is, I mean, most people in a democracy can agree that it's pretty important that the vote is not, that there isn't a level of election interference the way they got in trouble for last time around. Remember in 2016, Russia had constantly been posting, the, the internet research agency was using bots on Twitter to say, you know, we should, you should vote a different day. Black people shouldn't vote because their vote won't count. I mean, they, these polling places closed. They would say all sorts of things. Oh, voting by text message. That was one of the big messages that the IRA was trying to get across, that you could vote by text message. And those tweets were displayed in congressional hearings. And Jack Dorsey, Jack Dorsey had to look at them. Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, had to look at them and say, yeah, that's bad. We should have caught that. Um, and vowed to not do it again. So voting misinformation is one of the things that has always um, always hung over these companies as something you have to get right ahead of the 2020 election. It's just so different when the president is the one spreading the voting misinformation. And I think that's where, um, where it becomes politicized as opposed to something that, that both parties were telling them to address. And then I'll just return to that final question about Facebook. Um, yes. Well, Facebook, Facebook has really uh, tried to draw the line in the sand on voting misinformation, too, which is why I was so surprised that they didn't do anything about this, this Trump misinformation, that they allowed the same exact post to go viral on Facebook, even though Facebook has come out and said, you know, just like coronavirus harmful misinformation, the, those posts about drinking bleach to cure it, um, we are going to take down voting misinformation. And, and so I think that, that maybe the reason that they didn't act on this is, goes back to your, your prior point that they are more likely to be regulated than Twitter is. And, you know, the, where this leaves me, Sarah, is almost anticipating mea culpa part two from Mark Zuckerberg, um, because in, in my book, A Documentary History of the United States, um, we updated it to incorporate the, the Trump age, if you will, or the Facebook age, and um, that included the testimonies of the executives who admitted they broke the law with ads that were coming in through dubious means and currencies that were not U.S. dollars being spent on American political ads. And I just have this, this lurking feeling in, in my mind that um, the unholy alliance uh, that, that George Soros identified in, in, in a quote um, in conversation about Mark Zuckerberg and, and that he really sees Donald Trump's re-election as protecting his assets, including Instagram. Um, I just wonder if you can visualize, as I can, the possibility that Donald Trump is re-elected and that Mark Zuckerberg, once again, uh, has to uh, 
um, as he would probably quite inartfully um, take responsibility for not, you know, Russian monies that were spending money on uh, U.S. political ads, but the fact that lies were not vetted, fact-checked, removed from his platform. Um, there may very well be another wave of cyber espionage and he, that he has to apologize for, um, independent of, you know, there is a more transparent ad library where you can see theoretically where dollars and cents are being spent and if they're from the United States or if they're from non-U.S. parties. I mean, that's the one very basic thing that Facebook changed. I actually, I actually don't know that you will get what you're looking for here. I think, I think Zuckerberg has set himself up to not take the fall this time around for political misinformation. And um, although the public may, may uh, be upset about it, he has been very clear that he thinks that political misinformation is fine. As opposed to doing a mea culpa, he has come out and said, you're going to hate this. But I think that Facebook should be a place for free speech. And, and he's misusing the term free speech because free speech, as we know, is it, it actually guarantees the right to Facebook to monitor misinformation should they wish to. Facebook actually has a free speech right to edit um, their platform as it's a private company. And it's not a public forum where there should be like a library or a university campus where you, you expect to be able to speak freely. And, and so I think that he's using that term because it's, it's been politicized and it's useful, but it's also because that saying that they're in favor of free express, expression and free speech means that they have to hire fewer people to monitor speech. I mean, there are two ways they could go, right? They could, they could invest in trying to clean up their platform and then they would have to answer to every uh, person who feels they've been wronged, every mini crisis that occurs, or they could just not. And if they don't, then they get to just lift their hands up and say, sorry, like this is what we believe that you should be able to say whatever you want. And that is a much less expensive way to go about it it's a it's a much less resource heavy way to go about it, and it's a way that that puts Zuckerberg in the current administration's better graces. And I think that um, the the cost again is going to be on on our electorate. Right, and and it seems like he doesn't want to alienate a user base that has been tied to, to Trump's network uh, and conspiracy mongering and that Trump clearly, news does amazingly on Facebook. It really performs well. So the entire business model is antithetical to um, censorship. To, right. I mean, and, and, and also to segregating parts or classifying parts of the platform, um, which could, could be done, but, but it would, it would cause some, um, you know, he would miss miss profit margin. He would, you know, he would have to sacrifice something. But, you know, there, there's no indication that he is prepared to sacrifice any kind of economic value in um, in fostering 
a more truth, truthful experience um, and, and literate experience. Um, Sarah Fryer um, of Bloomberg and author of No Filter, I want to thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me.